From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. There's lawmaking and there's politics. Both matter as Colorado's legislature reconvenes today. Veteran state capitol reporter Benta Berkland is our guest. She'll help frame the new session. In terms of the lawmaking, lowering housing costs will be central again. A housing and land use package collapsed last time around. The governor and legislators didn't see eye to eye. It'll be fascinating to see how they pick back up a debate that touches not just on where we live, but how we live. And in terms of politics, it's an election year, and that'll no doubt seep in. Then new research suggests a bit of cannabis before exercise can make working out more enjoyable. Beyond just the reduction in pain, there's actually a boost in mood. I'll speak with the author of Runner's High. Do you know it's time to say goodbye to your car, but you want to be sure it goes somewhere it'll be appreciated? Donate it to CPR. And then, just like that, your car has new purpose, helping fuel all that it takes to run Colorado Public Radio. Your car has been good to you. Now let it be good to CPR. Find out how easy it is to donate your car on the support page at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Your state legislators are back to work. If you want to be technical about it, today's the start of the second regular session of the 74th General Assembly. CPR public affairs reporter Benta Berkland is with me with what we might expect as constituents of Colorado. Hi, Benta. Hi. Let's start with policy. Do you see any issue out there with the potential to dominate this session? I've heard from legislative leaders in both parties that the cost of housing, the high cost of living in the state is going to continue to be a top priority. And we can expect lawmakers to tackle that from a number of different directions, from renters' rights and making it easier for people to stay in their homes, to the Democratic push to try to reform land use laws and zoning. That was the top priority of Governor Jared Polis last session, but his major bill failed on the final day of the session. This year, Democrats want to pass a range of smaller policies instead of one single giant bill. You say that's how Democrats want to bring down the cost of housing. Do Republicans who are in the minority want to try something else? This is one policy area where they do all agree it's a problem they want to address, But Republican leaders say the goal should be to increase supply, and they want to focus more on construction defects reform and lowering the cost to build multi-unit housing to make it more affordable. Yeah, housing doesn't seem like a partisan issue, nothing like, I don't know, guns or abortion. Do you expect there to be some crossover between how each caucus tackles this issue? I mean, certainly there can be bipartisan support and bipartisan opposition Democrats have their largest legislative majorities in state history, so they don't need Republican buy-in to pass legislation, although it's something the majority party you know, says they'd like to have. But even with wide Democratic majorities, there are still disagreements when it comes to land use policies and zoning, how to increase density, and how much money should go towards transit, how much control the state should have over all of this. So a lot of complexities. We did see a lot of pushback last session from Republicans on the governor's plan to change how Colorado manages growth. But ultimately, it was the lack of Democratic support that led to that measure's demise. 
At the end of last week, a Colorado judge ruled that Democratic leaders can no longer use something known as quadratic voting to confidentially poll their members about spending and policy priorities. Benta, can you explain how this all worked and what it means that they can't use this tool anymore? Yes, this was an internal kind of digital poll where Democrats would rank bills based on what they most wanted to see funded. There's a limited pot of money in the state budget that's set aside for new policies each year. So this quadratic voting gave legislative leaders an advanced view of of what the caucus wanted to prioritize. Democrats defended this practice, saying it's only a preference poll, not a formal legislative vote. They point out that bills still have to go through public hearings, debates, and votes before they become law. Yeah, but obviously not everyone agreed with that. Right. There were complaints about this being an untransparent process, really since it first got out uh, a couple years ago. And last summer, a conservative group sued to block this process, arguing that the real goal here of these preference polls was to let Democrats keep their disagreements behind closed doors. Mm. A judge agreed and said the practice violated the spirit of open meetings laws and said Democrats were essentially voting on a proposed policy position. And the judge said the public has a constitutional right to an open legislative process. And to see the mess, Benta, to see that kind of arguing. Uh, This was the second time since the end of last session that a court essentially forced Democratic leaders to be more transparent, right? Right. Also last summer, two Democratic lawmakers, Representatives Elizabeth Epps and Bob Marshall, sued House leaders, alleging pervasive violations of the state's open meetings laws. They said members of both parties routinely break the law by having substantial conversations about public policy without providing the required notice to the public. And they were also concerned about some lawmakers' use of these uh, certain messaging apps. One of them is called Signal, and it's uh, self-deleting messages and sending these messages to their colleagues. That lawsuit ended when legislative leaders agreed to a number of changes including that lawmakers would not use these apps unless the records could be retained. And they said they would provide more public notice and notes of meetings. So do you expect any of this to change how the legislature operates? I think the biggest thing here that these unofficial meetings, you know, should they be open to the public? They're, they're not always. And including frequent planning sessions where Democrats allegedly mapped out how committee meetings would play out, And enough committee members would be present to constitute a quorum. So that essentially allowed them to decide the fate of bills before the committee hearing happened. Uh, Lawmakers can't do that anymore. At least they're not supposed to. So that's something we'll be watching out for this session. Certainly lawmakers do talk behind the scenes. That's part of the legislative process. But we'll really see if these transparency lawsuits have made the process more open. You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with veteran Statehouse reporter Benta Berkland, who's on our public affairs team, as the state legislature reconvenes. Benta, we're headed into an election year that includes all 65 of Colorado's House seats and half the state Senate. Plus, there are several Republican lawmakers who want a promotion and are running for Congress. Is that likely to affect what gets done under the dome? Because it's an election year, historically, lawmakers are less ambitious policy-wise. It's just kind of the nature of things. 
the session calendar gets closer to the political cycle. You know, not that we won't still see a lot of substantive bills. We will. But we also have people positioning themselves for re-election or running for higher office, as you mentioned. And some policies may be more about the campaign trail and the message they want to tell voters. It can also be harder for lawmakers to compromise when they feel that election spotlight. So all of that certainly can and does influence the session. Just this week, the Speaker of Colorado's House, Democrat Julie McCluskey, released a letter rebuking a member of her own caucus, Representative Elizabeth Epps of Denver. Briefly walk us through what's behind that letter. This was a formal reprimand for Epps. Speaker McCluskey said that Epps engaged in numerous actions during a special legislative session in last November, right before Thanksgiving, that were significantly disruptive to House business and caused delays. McCluskey said Epps engaged in disrespectful behaviors, which, quote, failed to uphold the honor and dignity of our democratic institution. And that also includes how she talked to her colleagues. What's the backstory here? What happened during the special session to spark all this? This was essentially about the war in Gaza. As a statement of her opposition to the war, Epps introduced an amendment that would keep people who get food aid in Colorado from buying products made in the Palestinian territories. She ended her remarks with the words, free Palestine. Afterward, a a Jewish Republican lawmaker came to the podium to speak about the conflict and his family's history in Israel. Epps by then was up in the gallery with pro-Palestinian protesters who shouted down and interrupted his remarks several times. Uh, I will say there are occasionally protesters up in the chamber galleries, but this really was an incredibly unusual moment. Any idea if this letter kind of ends the issue? The letter mentioned other disciplinary actions could be taken if there are further breaches in decorum. Republicans are still asking for Epps to be censured, but it doesn't appear Democratic leaders would support that unless other issues do occur. And worth noting, that takes a vote of the full House. Okay. Well, lawmakers start their work without two of their colleagues from last year, first-term Democratic representatives Ruby Dixon and Syed Charbini, both resigned In December, both cited the vitriolic political climate as a reason, or at least in part. Do you expect that to have any reverberations during session? Certainly it's unusual for that to occur with two lawmakers in their first term, or any lawmakers for that matter. For Sharpini, he mentioned the political acrimony, but his primary reason was the financial strain serving in the legislature put on his family. I think their resignations, though, do make a lot of lawmakers reflect even more on how they plan to treat each other going forward. For the most part, the vast majority of lawmakers are cordial, friendly. A lot of them do genuinely get along with each other. But there are certainly tense flashpoints. And I think we can expect to see that this session, especially when it comes to topics like what's happening with the war between Israel and Hamas. We have talked almost exclusively about the state house. Is the Colorado Senate just less interesting? Last session, it certainly wasn't as contentious in terms of public conflicts. The Senate does have a reputation of being more deliberative, less fiery, and many senators do seem to lean into that identity. But I would not say the Senate is in any way less interesting. (laughs) It's, It's a chamber that has a slightly more narrow Democratic majority. And a lot of the committees last year were structured so that Democrats only had a one vote advantage. 
That meant more moderate Democratic senators had the power to demand significant changes to progressive bills or defeat them outright. So a lot of the tension around what policies were going to pass last legislative session were focused on the Senate. And that will continue to be the case this year, too. Okay, And there's a new majority leader in the Senate, right? Robert Rodriguez. Um, Yeah. Yes, that's right. We have a new majority leader in the Senate, Robert Rodriguez of Denver, and he revised some of the committee compositions this session in ways that could make it easier for progressive bills to make it to the Senate floor. And that means we could see more Democrat on Democrat conflicts there, too. On the Senate side. Benta, thank you so much. Thanks, Ryan. CPR public affairs reporter Benta Berkland helping tee up Colorado's legislative session. Both chambers come together tomorrow as Governor Jared Polis delivers his State of the State speech. We'll carry that live at 11 Thursday morning. Then Polis is scheduled to be our guest on Colorado Matters Friday. Be right back. This is CPR News and KRCC. Every time you buy a scratch-off or a lottery ticket, some of that money goes to support our great outdoors. Colorado Parks and Wildlife receives... 10% of their funding directly from the lottery, and that's for investments in our state parks system. But how much money are we talking? Read the story from Colorado Wonders at CPR.org. Made possible in part by the Colorado Health Foundation. Cannabis can make exercise more fun, but it doesn't really enhance performance. That's according to a first-of-its-kind study from CU Boulder, One of the people who took part in the research is Denver journalist Josiah Hesse. He's author of Runner's High, How a Movement of Cannabis-Fueled Athletes is Changing the Science of Sports. We spoke in 2022. And welcome to the show, Josiah. Thanks so much for having me, Ryan. There is a stereotype that pot users are sedentary and, you know, like suffering the effects of the munchies. But that's really not borne out in the data, is it? No, it's not. And that's something that we're just uh, now coming to understand with the legalization of cannabis. A lot more people who are more ambitious, uh, more in a mainstream career field or lifestyle are admitting that they use cannabis and have been for some time and like to incorporate it with physical activity. Uh, And there's been a number of polls uh, looking at that. Uh, One from Angela Bryan out of CU Boulder looking at the exercise habits of people living in legalized states. And she found that 80% of respondents were using cannabis before, during, or after their workout. And uh, she's also discovered that cannabis users have lower rates of diabetes, uh, obesity, and are just generally more fit than their sober counterparts. Did that come as a surprise to you? Not for me. Some of the data did, but I've been in the world of cannabis for a long time, reporting on it as a journalist, and then also just being in that world. And I knew that that stereotype was not representative of the people who used cannabis. Uh, It was representative of the people who were out about their use of cannabis. Uh, And these were typically people who had nothing to lose uh, from the world finding out that they used cannabis. They were you know, not bad people, but somewhat of, uh, you could say, dropouts of society. Uh, These aren't investment bankers. Um, (laughs) But like I said, with uh, legalization, people, you know, like investment bankers or soccer moms or firefighters or all sorts of 
highly active people are admitting that they use cannabis in a variety of contexts. Okay, you mentioned there something subtle, but you said that you're a journalist and you're also in that world. Uh, I think the implication being that you are both a reporter and a consumer of cannabis. Um, That would be accurate. That would be accurate. Is that a tricky balance when you're writing reportage? Absolutely. Uh, I think every journalist has their bias, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you lean into that bias and make it your identity. Some people do, and uh, they make good money on cable news doing that. But I often try to immerse myself in the counterpoints of cannabis detractors and understand where they're coming from and what science they're citing. And what their perspective on cannabis is, the threat of it to society, the threat of it to individuals, and really give them my full unbiased attention. At the end of the day, I disagree with them on a lot of points. I also end up agreeing with them on a lot of points. I think uh, the cannabis industry has a lot of due criticism coming to it. I think cannabis can be used irresponsibly. Uh, I think a lot of the products that are out there aren't necessarily uh, the best way to manufacture cannabis or consume cannabis. So as a journalist, I think it would be unfair of me to say that cannabis is 100% good 100% of the time for 100% of the people. Josiah, you're a runner. Uh, One I'll say who hates treadmills, you'd rather be outside running. Uh, Yet you did agree to jump on a treadmill to take part in a quote, groundbreaking study of cannabis use during exercise. Uh, Why don't you tell us more about the researcher? You've already mentioned her, psychologist Angela Bryan at CU Boulder. Um, Say more about her and what she's trying to learn. Yeah, she has a very fascinating story because she got into the, uh, started researching the subject of cannabis somewhat as a detractor. She was looking at why people don't exercise uh, and what prevents them from exercising. And when legalization came on, Uh, She was concerned that this would lead to more sedentary behavior. Hmm. And the more she looked into it, the more she found that the opposite was true and just started digging deeper into the subject. And the research that she was doing, the study she was doing that I participated in, dovetailed with the sort of themes of my book, which, you know, in addition to all of the physiological benefits uh, that we get from cannabis uh, in terms of anti-inflammatories or reduced muscle spasticity or sleep, there's also a shift in perspective on exercise itself. Quite often, Americans view exercise as a discipline or even a punishment, as Mm -hmm. we've seen in the military, something that you endure for some kind of end, you know, like better health, better fitness, uh, being more attractive. But the research that she was doing and what my research seemed to be showing with people that I was speaking with anecdotally was that cannabis can make exercise more enjoyable, that beyond just uh, the reduction in pain, there's actually a boost in mood. And I don't want to say that this is the conclusions of her studies. Uh, I I don't think they've been published yet. But when I went and consumed cannabis and ran on the treadmill in her lab, they were asking a series of questions um, every five or 10 minutes as I was running on the treadmill. uh, What is my mental state? You know, am I dissociating? Am I engaged? Am I enjoying this? And 
We did it once without cannabis and once with cannabis. And I could confirm then, as I could with a number of other experiences I've had as a runner, that it was just so much more enjoyable under the influence of cannabis, uh, a moderate dose of cannabis, I'll Mm -hmm. add. Uh, That's very important uh, when using it with exercise. But yeah, uh, just more in the moment, more uh, mind-body connection more pleasure for the act itself. Uh, Even things like a little bit of pain or a little bit of exhaustion can be stimulating in that capacity because you're just so engaged with the activity itself. It's it's not painful. It's quite lovely. And so do you think that sort of research, were it to continue, might be the catalyst for more Americans getting more exercise I certainly hope so, because we all have the capacity to enjoy exercise. Uh, Evolution has given us this uh, reward system for things like food when it comes to salt, fat, and sugar, uh, or sleep, or sex, or learning, you know, anything from academic research to just being on social media. You're getting information coming at you, and there's a little reward, a little dopamine boost, uh, all sorts of different uh, neurochemistry going on there. But exercise should be in that category. And it's really unfortunate that we have this perspective of it as something that's just grueling uh, because we have uh, what's called an endogenous cannabinoid system. I know that's a a lot to take on, but we all have uh, an endogenous opioid system through endorphins. And we get a what's called a runner's high mm-hmm. after a certain amount of cardiovascular activity. And that's a reduction in pain and an uplift in mood. Runners have been speaking about this for decades. And that's actually a cannabinoid, uh, you know, not unlike THC or CBD, which are found in the plants, cannabis. It's a natural cannabinoid that's in our body that makes us feel really good after a certain amount of exercise. And cannabis has the potential to jumpstart that system, which seems to be dormant in a lot of people. People don't need to be incentivized to eat salt, fat, or sugar, or to go to sleep, or to have an orgasm. That's something that people just naturally pursue without any outside incentives. So if people can engage with their uh, cardiovascular system and endocannabinoid system, I believe cannabis can be a stimulant for that. If they can engage with that, they can just organically enjoy exercise without any sort of discipline or end result. Just enjoy it for the hedonistic pleasures of its own. The the notion that there are natural cannabinoids inherent to my body, it was just such a revelation when I read in depth about this in your book, Runner's High. And, you know, it just occurred to me that in school I'd learned about uh, the endocrine system and the pulmonary system and heard diddly squat about natural, you know, onboard, inborn cannabinoids. Yeah, it's something that's uh, unfortunately been a taboo subject, even though it hasn't really been disputed. Uh, The National Institute of Health decades ago said that uh, the endocannabinoid system is involved in nearly all human diseases. And it's involved in almost all human bodily functions, appetite stimulation, uh, fertility, sleep, mood, there's almost nothing that goes on in our body that isn't influenced in one way or another by endogenous cannabinoids. And yet it was something that was taboo to study because a lot of scientists didn't want their careers defined by this topic because it was in some ways wrapped up in cannabis, which is interesting because studying endorphins, uh, nobody really thought like, oh, you must be into heroin. 
setting endorphins. <laughs> but uh, even though, you know, endorphins just means endogenous morphine. But for some reason, that was the case with the endocannabinoid system. There was a research, I believe, in 2013 that showed only 9% of medical schools were teaching the uh, endocannabinoid system, which is insane considering the impact it has on all these different bodily functions. Now, that said, it has changed greatly since that survey was taken. And now it is a, a really blossoming field of science, one that's both independent of researching cannabis and one that's integrated with researching cannabis. And as we're sort of shedding the stigma of cannabis in general, uh, hopefully that field of science will be embraced by all sorts of different people. In researching this book, you met a number of endurance athletes, many of them in Colorado, who integrate cannabis into their training. The highest profile might be ultra runner Avery Collins. Uh, You've mentioned the drug's anti-inflammatory properties, uh, its ability to reduce pain. Why does Avery Collins use cannabis? Well, he's certainly not an outlier in that respect, but he is the person I spent the most time with, the ultra runner I spent the most time with on this. And he talks about it in a very mystical way. He's not all that much of a new age woo-woo person, but he speaks of a, a just this pure bliss that comes over him when running. Uh, and he said the same thing that I hear from a lot of ultramarathon runners in that to do that job, you know, to run a 200 mile race through the mountains, you know, uh, there's a lot of numbers that come into play. You have to think about your pace, your heart rate, your calories, uh, your distance, your elevation, and you really have to have a very mathematical approach to that endeavor. But with cannabis, it can allow him to, at least momentarily, particularly in training, I'll add that he doesn't use it in competition, but momentarily set all of that aside, all the ancillary chatter of being a professional athlete and just be immersed in the activity itself, really remind someone why they got into it in the first place. They're loving the trails, they're loving the trees, the sky, the, the feeling in their body of breathing hard, of working your muscles hard, the sort of meditative aspects of your feet, you know, in this consistent rhythm for hours and hours. And then also they speak a lot about endurance running as being, Avery especially has mentioned this, it's a 10% physical and 90% mental. And that 10% physical is important. You have to be in good shape. You have to train hard. Your body's got to be ready, you know, to run up a mountain for a day or two. But so much of it is mental, keeping your confidence up, not getting anxious, not getting paranoid, not getting uh, deterred. Uh, you, You really go into a kind of frenzied mental state after you've been running for that long and you need something to kind of keep you balanced. And that's why a lot of them will bring edibles or a pen vaporizer with them. Uh, Avery doesn't, but I know a lot of people do in the races, uh, which is taboo and is uh, banned, but it can help calm all that down. And as I said before, get you back into the focus of the act itself. You, You did indeed mention that Avery Collins doesn't use during or even close to competitions, um, just by way of background, former Denver Nugget Kenyon Martin told the Bleacher Report a while back that about 85% of NBA players use cannabis. Major League Baseball, meanwhile, 
removed cannabis from its list of prohibited substances in 2020. But pot is still a big no-no in golf, for instance. Help us understand like where pro sports is on this question. You know, I often ask myself that same question because it changes uh, quite regularly. And I don't think uh, all these regulatory agencies really know themselves exactly where it's at. But basically, there's this governing body uh, called the World Anti-Doping Agency that every, every uh, you know, the NBA, the MLB, they all have their own policies. Uh, but WADA is kind of the umbrella on this issue that regulates or informs uh, a lot of these agencies on what they should do. Mm -hmm. And they have categorized it as a banned substance. They removed CBD from it a few years ago. They changed the amount of THC that's allowed in the system uh, to be a little bit higher. So if people were using, say, during training and they stopped a few days before competition, you know, and a little bit shows up, they're not going to get in trouble for that. But they have uh, three different criteria for what makes a banned substance. You know, it's performance enhancing, so it'll take you beyond your natural limits, or that it's uh, uh, harmful to the body. And then there's a third criteria, which is very big. It's called the spirit of the sport. It violates the spirit of the sport. And they admit that that's a pretty nebulous term, but a lot of it comes down to being a bad influence on children. Yeah, let me, uh, let me just and, read this quote from WADA. Using illicit drugs is not consistent with the athlete as a role model for young people around the world. Uh, that is a quote that you include in your book, by the way. And what, what do you make of this statement? I think it harkens back to the sort of old drug uh, war on drugs rhetoric about the kinds of people who use drugs or the kind of people who manufacture or sell drugs, that these are inherently bad people. And it's 100% uh, of the time a bad influence on children. But it's just remarkably inconsistent with where we're at today on this issue and others as well, because we don't see alcohol as problematic in any way, as a bad influence on children. And I know most athletes are good people, but they live really wild lives uh, a lot of the time. And they're people who kind of live on the razor's edge of life often, not unlike, you know, say Keith Richards, you know, or Amy Winehouse, who people who wouldn't necessarily consider role models for children, but I see these worlds as having a lot of overlap. And the idea that cannabis is going to be harmful for your body, it's definitely not taking anyone beyond their natural limits. I think it does have performance enhancing aspects, but not under that criteria. But the idea that it's a bad influence on children, if somebody takes a, a gummy, an edible gummy before they work out or to you know bring them into a relaxed state during recovery, uh, or for their mental health, you know, and certainly a whole lot of pharmaceuticals aren't banned for their mental health properties, uh, is just ridiculous. Or it, it appears ridiculous to the people who live inside legalized states and have seen the effects of it. You know, we saw it, we heard a whole lot of hysteria from people like Chris Christie about what was going to happen to Colorado when legalization came on and, and that hasn't come to pass. And we have so many states now that are legalized. This just doesn't lead to the kind of degradation of a human or of society that a lot of people would claim. And so I just don't think uh, there's any evidence to show that it would be a bad influence on children. Now, you invoked alcohol a bit earlier. And if people are uncomfortable with the rapprochement between exercise and cannabis, you encourage them to think about the ties between sports and alcohol. The Rockies, for instance, play at, name it. Coors Field. Coors Field. 
Uh, you, Josiah, were offered a beer after a race. Share just a few thoughts about that. Well, yeah, it certainly wasn't just the one time that I was offered a beer at the race. Uh, you know, these races are often sponsored by brewers, and some of them will start or finish at a brewery, and they'll give you drink tickets uh, at the end of the race. And it's considered the way to celebrate the finishing of the race, the completion of it. You you want a cold beer, and I don't have any problem with that, but it seems a little inconsistent with this idea that cannabis sets a bad influence for children. And when you look at the cost of alcohol on a human body, on society in general, uh, you know, loss of productivity from hangovers, criminal justice system, domestic violence. I mean, I could talk all day about the harms on society of alcohol. Cannabis really just doesn't compare on that level. And yet we seem to have no problem with integrating alcohol into uh, these marathons or into professional sports and would certainly see no problem with an athlete, you know, after the game in the locker room, opening up bottles of champagne, pouring champagne all over each other. Hmm. Nobody looks at that and says they're setting a bad example for children, you know, even though kids may look at that and think I want to pop a bottle of champagne and, you know, spray it all over myself as well. Uh, it's just something that seems a little inconsistent to me. And there's also a party atmosphere in a lot of the races that I've gone to. I attended uh, Ragnar a number of times, this race in Snowmass, this relay race. And it was like a music festival in the tents below. People were guzzling tequila, you know, beers and getting drunk and then going and running the race. And, you know, that makes it maybe fun for at least a short period of time, but I would think that would make you a terrible runner. But people have no problem with that kind of activity inside races. Given the federal prohibition on marijuana, there's simply a dearth of cannabis research. And Angela Bryan, uh, who we talked about earlier from CU Boulder, you know, she has to have like all these carve-outs where she does this research, how she does this research using a bus off campus. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, and that's what makes a lot of cannabis research uh, suspect going back, you know, pre-legalization because so much of it or all of it was only allowed uh, to use cannabis grown at the University of Mississippi, uh, which is overseen by the DEA. And they can only grow very low THC, no CBD cannabis that is grown poorly, freeze-dried, ground up with the stems and seeds in it, shipped across the country, uh, rehydrated, and given to people to smoke. And uh, people, especially in Colorado, you know, even before legalization, when we had medical or just anything coming out of the Emerald Triangle in California, would look at this and think, well, this is just horrible. This is garbage. I'm not going to put this in my body. Well, that's going to influence your research uh, dramatically. You know, if all, the only research we had on alcohol was on poorly manufactured moonshine, uh, we would think like, well, that's not consistent with people who are drinking wine or beer uh, at the bar every night. Uh, and so now we have, we're getting more research with higher quality cannabis, but you're right. They couldn't use it on the campus because uh, it's still federally illegal. Uh, the university could lose a lot of their federal funding if they were to bring an illicit substance onto the campus and include, uh, allow people to use it. It's actually easier to use cocaine or crack uh, in studies than it is cannabis uh, 
Carl Hart's done some amazing studies uh, with cocaine, but that's a, a Schedule II substance, uh, so it's not as prohibited. But huh. to participate in Angela Bryan's study, I had to go in this van, get my blood drawn, go into someone's house, a friend's house, and consume some cannabis, a type of cannabis that they had picked out for me, but I had to go purchase myself, consume it, go back in the van, get blood work taken, and then speed me off to the university where I would run on a treadmill, you know, hopefully before my cannabis high uh, deteriorates in any way, and then conduct their study there. Uh, so it's a very elaborate, uh, I don't think it necessarily impacted the quality of the research um, because it was such a short distance to the university, but still a strange legalistic pageantry that we all had to go through in order to get the study done. And a lot of uh, universities or a lot of researchers looking at that would think, I'm not even going to deal with that minefield of you know, legalistic uh, jargon, and I'm just going to not research this topic. The book opens and closes with you running the Colfax Marathon in 2015 in Denver, running it while high, quoting you, I was having the time of my life running high through a city that held so much love and memories for me until the chorus took us past the Denver County Jail. Uh, Josiah Hesse, why was that site hard for you? Well, uh, by that time, cannabis had been legalized, but young people were still getting busted for possession. Uh, there's still a whole lot of laws around it, uh, not just for underage people, but for people of all sorts of ages. And a lot of the uh, arrests that were happening and the citations that were happening were still disproportionately affecting people of color. Uh, and that's certainly the case outside of Colorado and states that haven't legalized. Uh, the war on drugs is still very much alive. There are black people in Texas uh, picking cotton in fields, you know, with cops with shotguns watching them on a chain gang for marijuana. This is still happening in America. And to a lesser extent, it is happening in Colorado. But watching that being surrounded by, let's face it, predominantly white people uh, who run marathons and can afford to do that and can afford the lifestyle that comes with it, it was a little unsettling, the disparity, the, the privilege that I felt uh, running in that race, enjoying it so much, and thinking about anyone who may be in that jail for something related to cannabis or certainly something related to the war on drugs. And knowing that I wasn't in that jail largely because of uh, the color of my skin, I would say, because I've, I've certainly engaged in risky behavior when it comes to breaking drug laws. But uh, outside of a night I spent in jail in Iowa, I've never really suffered all that many consequences from it. So it makes it difficult to just lean into the joy of that experience, knowing that so many less privileged people are certainly living lives uh, not nearly so glamorous as, you know, getting stoned and listening to Beyonce while running in the Colfax Marathon. <laughs> what was the Beyonce track? Oh, the Coachella Live album for me, the, okay. the whole way through, I think is just a banger of a running album. This is not a how-to interview, but at the end of your book, you have a how-to chapter uh, in terms of training, exercising with cannabis. But you say that you composed that chapter reluctantly. Uh, I'm curious why you were reluctant to do a how-to. Well, I grew up in the world of evangelical Christianity, where there's a whole lot of how-to 
with pretty much any aspect of life. And I really didn't want to approach this like the Tim Ferriss uh, five hour work week of, you know, follow me into the sunset, you know, come to my conferences and change your life. I really <laughs> wanted to report on the things that were exciting for me about using cannabis and exercise. And then also all of these people who were using it and the science that was coming out around it. There was just so much fun to dig into. And my editor wanted a how-to chapter, and I pushed against that because I just didn't want to be any kind of uh, stoned athlete guru. But when I thought about it and thought about my journey with cannabis and so many other people's, I realized that if I'm, I need to take on some responsibility uh, for this book, for anyone who's just going to think, okay, if I take a whole bunch of edibles, I'm suddenly going to be able to run a marathon after not running a single mile in my life. That is not true. And it's a dangerous idea for people to get in their heads. And, uh, and then there are other things like don't mix it with alcohol. You know, so many people who have bad experiences with cannabis uh, do it at parties when they've had a whole lot of alcohol and then someone hands them a joint and they get dizzy, they get the spins, they get anxious and paranoid, and maybe they throw up and they think, well, that's cannabis. I don't want to do that ever again. Well, that's a terrible way to introduce yourself to cannabis. So yeah, it's something that when I think back on my experiences, there was a whole lot that I would have benefited from. And we are mindful, of course, of the age restrictions around cannabis as well in Colorado. Absolutely. Josiah, when you were a kid, you equated athletes with the meathead bullies who taunted you. And that experience really colored your view of team sports and of competition. I have to say, I identified a lot with this aspect of the book. Um, I didn't feel terribly good at sports. I was called a sissy. uh, And I think it really did shape my perception of movement and exercise. But here with this project for the Book Runners High, you're spending a lot of time with professional athletes and kind of weekend warriors. What gives? Like, you know, how was it to expose yourself to that which had traumatized you as a kid? It wasn't fun at first. Uh, I have been covering a variety of subjects as a freelance journalist for a long time. Science, the arts, politics, crime, but never stepped anywhere close to sports uh, for that reason. I I don't go to sports games. I don't I don't even know what Denver's teams are, to be honest with you. And when I was a kid, yeah, I, I, I was a lot like Bobby Hill from King of the Hill. I was just like very strange and very soft and very weak and couldn't really participate in anything and got teased mercilessly for that and was bullied. And it was very traumatizing and something that stayed with me and colored my view of sports and physical activity. And I think that's a not uncommon story, as, as you mentioned about yourself. But getting into that world, spending time with athletes, getting over the uh, image I had of anyone who exercised or anyone who's into sports or uh, was into competition, that really started to shift uh, the more they were humanized in my eyes. And they weren't mean. They, they weren't cruel. They weren't bullying. They weren't, um, they weren't approaching competition with that toxic mindset of, I need to destroy my competitor. Quite often, there was a kind of camaraderie between them, a camaraderie within competition, and people were uh, challenged to be better in that competition. And I could certainly relate to that. I've seen that in the arts for years and years. 
but also when looking at the stereotypes that people carried about cannabis users, that they're lazy, that they're degenerates, uh, that they're not ambitious, that they're unreliable, and knowing how untrue those stereotypes were, I had to take a second look at my stereotypes about athletes, you know, that mm. they're meatheads, that they're bullies, that they're homophobic, uh, that they're just cruel human beings. Uh, and, you know, realize like, okay, if I'm going to challenge this one stereotype about cannabis users, I really need to challenge my own stereotypes about people into athletics. And that happened organically just through spending time with these people and realizing they're really good, kind, gentle people who have no interest in bullying anyone. And there was actually something about competition that really appealed to me. Josiah, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Ryan. This was delightful. Denver journalist Josiah Hesse. His book is Runner's High, How a Movement of Cannabis-Fueled Athletes is Changing the Science of Sports. The research he took part in at CU Boulder, published in December, neuroscientist Angela Bryan found that a little cannabis before exercise can make working out more enjoyable without acting as a performance enhancer. Will Queen be right back? The arts have a vital role in Colorado's economy and community identity in all 64 counties, and CPR is there. I'm arts and culture reporter Eden Lane, and I report on theater, dance, music, as well as visual art, film, writers, and so much more. In my stories, you'll hear about the notable events, but even more, we hope to give you insight into the work and lives of the creators. Read and listen to arts and culture stories and see pictures at cpr.org arts. For transgender teens, Colorado has recently passed laws to protect access to gender-affirming care. It means families flock here from more restrictive states. CPR's Matt Bloom spoke with one family about their life-changing move to Denver. Hadley Charles is like a lot of 13-year-olds. She likes hanging out with friends and dabbling in her hobbies, which include making colorful friendship bracelets. I've made a lot of necklaces, too. This one says Taylor's version. (laughs) She's also trans, and she says it was really hard to be herself in her hometown of Oklahoma City. I was, like, very anxious, and I was feeling a lot of dysphoria. It was just very hard to go to school. The state's Republican legislature passed a law in 2023 that restricts her access to gender-affirming care, like puberty blockers and hormone therapy that help with a gender transition. It's one of 75 anti-LGBTQ laws passed across the U.S. last year, a record, according to the ACLU. Hadley's mom, Liz, said Oklahoma's laws made it hard to envision a future in their home state. I think Hadley's mental and emotional health was starting to take a toll, and that's when things started to become really real for us. This past August, she made the difficult decision to move. They picked Colorado because it's one of just 11 states that protect gender-affirming care for minors. Advocates say they're part of a larger migration taking place. We're creating refugees within our own country. 
Brianna Titone is a Colorado state representative who helped pass Colorado's transgender care protections. She says clinics that provide care have reported wait lists up to double what they were a year ago, and many have faced threats. You know, I mean, it's very disruptive and, and it's stressful. And those kinds of things help to reduce the number of people doing it. Families like Liz and Hadley say the logistics of moving were a challenge, but it's paid off. I was in a really bad mental state in OKC, and as soon as I moved here, it was kind of slow. But, I, like, I, like, felt so much better mentally. Hadley's next goal, to make a few more friends and continue the transition she couldn't back in her hometown. I'm Matt Bloom, CPR News. You will know it is time to turn the page when you hear the chimes ring like this. We have chosen our next book to read together for Turn the Page with Colorado Matters. The book is called Heartbreak, A Personal and Scientific Journey by Colorado science writer Florence Williams. The project began when her 25-year marriage fell apart. Think of this pick as counter-programming ahead of the Valentine's Day barrage. So read Heartbreak, then join me and the author in Loveland, Colorado, naturally, on Wednesday, February 7th. We'll be at the Rialto Theater. More information and tickets at CPR.org slash turn the page. That's our show for today. I'm Ryan Warner. I'm